Raj Basord, and I'm a consultant psychiatrist uh, based in London. And I'm joined today by Catherine Keyes, who is an assistant professor of epidemiology at Columbia University in New York. And today we're going to be discussing a paper published by her and several colleagues. And the paper has been published in the American Journal of Psychiatry and is entitled The Burden of Loss unexpected death of a loved one and psychiatric disorders across the life course in a national study. So Catherine, first of all, let me start by asking you, what do you mean by unexpected death of a loved one? What are you referring to by that title? Um, sure. Thank you so much and thank you so much for having me um, on the program. Um, we consider unexpected death um, sudden, sudden death, so um, examples would include um, homicide, suicide, um, death of a loved one in a motor vehicle crash, fatality, for example, um, anything that was acute and unexpected would, would fall under that category. And by loved one, you mean people like wives, brothers, sisters, girlfriends, boyfriends? Um, that, that is left a bit more ambiguous in our study um, because the we we leave it up to the respondents to define what a loved one is um certainly um people like spouses parents children would fall under the rubric of loved one and then beyond that it would be your appraisal of that person's proximity to you um you know for example someone's cousin could be someone near and dear or it could be someone they see once every few years and um so your your appraisal of that person's closeness to you is what's important now, when people talk about stressful life events, they often say things like divorce and moving house. Um, but actually, unexpected death of a loved one probably is the most stressful experience any of us are going to encounter. Isn't that right? Well, what we documented, and I was actually very surprised by this, so in, in the um, study that we conducted, um, we assessed about 20 different potential traumatic experiences that would include breakup of a romantic relationship um, and, and, and even you know very severe types of events such as um, physical assault or sexual assault um, and so we asked respondents if they had experienced these types of events over their lives and then we asked them what was worst for them which of these events was the worst thing that they experienced and no matter how many stressful life experiences the respondents reported, unexpected death of a loved one when it occurred was most frequently reported as the worst event in the respondents' life. Even if they had experienced, you know, we went up to five, six, seven, eight different types of potentially traumatic experiences, and still unexpected death of a loved one was most often rated the worst thing that the respondent experienced. And despite the fact this is the worst thing that can happen to you, there actually isn't an enormous amount of research on this issue. Um, yeah, there's, there is a lot of research on um, you know, bereavement experiences and, and grief experiences and how that might translate into psychological distress and certainly you know, it is one of the most profound experiences of um, the human condition. You know, losing someone very close to you, those attachment figures, it has a profound effect on your sense of self and your sense of identity, and there's been a lot of research in that area. 
So the other important thing about this study is its sheer size. This is a massive study. In the abstract, you mentioned analytic sample size 27,534. Could you say something Ooh. about the sheer size of, this, of the study? Yes, yes. So it was a very large study of the general population in the U.S. Um, and so we, we did a representative sample of individuals in the U.S. Um, and and so, you know, we, we were able to survey a, a huge number of people. We did face-to-face -face interviews with them. Um, so a, a, a trained interviewer was asking them questions from a structured clinical interview. Um, so we had very good reliability across respondents in terms of all the measures that we were assessing. Um, and what was really novel about the study was that what we, what we were very much interested in was whether we knew that losing a loved one is psychologically distressing and is associated with um, psychiatric disorders. But what we were really interested in is whether those, those responses differed across disorder type and differed across the life course. So if you lost a loved one in childhood, for example, did that have a different association with the onset of psychiatric disorders if you lost someone when you were an established adult with, with a you know, presumably greater social network. And what we found was really that losing a loved one has a profound effect on numerous the onset of numerous psychiatric disorders um, across the life course, um, certainly in childhood, but also in adulthood, you know, a first onset of um, a wide variety of mood and anxiety disorders and also substance disorders. You know, these disorders onset in the wake of losing uh, a loved one unexpectedly throughout the life course. And we even found that among older adults, you know, one of the most surprising findings was that, was that people 50 and 60 and older will experience the first onset of a psychiatric disorder after losing a loved one unexpectedly um, later in life. And the other really interesting thing is the particular disorders that seem to occur. There's certain disorders that are that cluster around uh, the unexpected loss of a loved one, and these were PTSD, post-traumatic yeah. stress disorder, panic, depression, and particularly interesting to me is the first onset of mania or a manic episode. Right. Could you say something about this last finding? Because this is particularly intriguing. Sure. Yeah. Um, so. So this has a long history in the um, psychiatric literature in terms of clinical case reports. Um, there have been numerous case reports of, of, um, of what's called funeral mania. Um, and so it's manic episodes that um, first onset or, you know, there's no history of sort of mania. And then in the wake of bereavement, um, someone will experience a manic episode during during the bereavement period for a loved one. Um, and so there have been these case reports, but had, it had never been documented in, in a general population sample. And so we were, you know, we were intrigued as well by, by the findings that, you know, we documented first onset of manic episodes and mania following the unexpected, unexpected death of a loved one. Um, and those rates were elevated quite consistently across the life course. 
And by mania, we should perhaps explain that what we mean by that is a condition whereby people um, experience elevated mood, they can develop quite grandiose ideas, uh, they speak Correct. very fast, they have racing thoughts, they have trouble sleeping, their appetite goes up, yeah. um, they can get quite flirtatious, uh, they're promiscuous. Exactly, and 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 certainly, you know, in the in the case reports, you know, that have been documented, you know, there's a um, everything that you've mentioned, and then there's also, you know, like um, excessive spending, gambling, um, you know, sort of just acting out, and you know, behavioral disinhibition more broadly. Um, I think is what's been characterized in the literature in terms of these kind of manic episodes after losing a loved one unexpectedly. And what I think is very interesting about your study, one of the many things about this very interesting study, is that to some extent we would expect people to get PTSD, post-traumatic stress, or panic, mm -hmm. or depression. The, the mania finding is the more difficult one to explain. What's, could you say anything about the theories, about how you'd explain why people go manic or go high after the loss of an unexpected loss of a loved one? Um, you know, w what I would say was that it is an intriguing finding to document in the general population, but we see case reports of this going back to the 19th century, where, you know, this, this um, phenomenon known as funeral mania, um, you know, it's been documented in literature and people who have just these sort of psychodynamic disturbances in the wake of losing, you know, when you lose a, someone who is a central figure to you, it's a loss of identity and it's a loss of sense of self because oftentimes for those who we are attached to, our closest loved ones, our sense of identity are wrapped up in those individuals and so once we lose them, we no longer have a sense of self. Um, and I think for some individuals and certainly, you know, it's not the majority of individuals in our study, the majority of individuals in our study did not experience any type of psychological disturbance in the wake of a loved one, they had normal, you know, bereavement and grief reactions. But for a subset of people, you know, these losses of key attachment figures do their vulnerability to the development of these disorders, some of which include responses that are manic um, and, in, and induce these sort of manic episodes. And that's a very important point you're making, that it's not the case necessarily that the majority of people who right. suffer this terrible no, stress end up in trouble psychologically. Now, I know your study wasn't really about resilience, but I wondered if you had any thoughts about the fact that, in fact, many people experience terrible things but don't end up with psychiatric disturbance. Yeah, and I would something say, that's making them resilient. Right, you know, and, and I would point out that loss, unexpected loss of a loved one was the most frequent event that was that was endorsed among the potentially traumatic events that we cited. So more than 40% of our sample lost someone unexpectedly in their lives, which points to the universality of this kind of human condition of losing, losing people who are close to you. You know, that is something that we all experience during our lives. Um, and losing someone unexpectedly is not a rare event by any means. And so I think that I think that it, it is a vulnerable period for a subset of people um, that needs to be watched closely for the, you know, for the onset of potentially distressing thoughts and distressing experiences and distressing behaviors. 
Um, but certainly we don't want to pathologize bereavement or pathologize grief. You know, these are normal parts of the human condition, and we all experience those when we lose loved ones. But for a subset of people, it really is a, a vulnerable period um, and sort of a reservoir of risk for the onset of these really troubling symptoms. So we're running out of time a little bit, and there may be something else you want to say or other comment you may want to make about an important finding that we haven't touched on. So I'll let you think about that a bit before I ask you one of my final questions, which is that this was not a study whereby you had direct contact with people and could interview them in depth about their personal experiences, the sheer size of it. Um, mitigated mm -hmm. against that. But I'm wondering about how it changed you in terms mm -hmm. of any people that were close to you who've had unexpected uh, loss of a loved one, how it changed your approach to this subject, or did it have a personal impact on you, uh, this study? Um, you know, I, I think that when I now, you know, I, I haven't fortunately lost a loved one in the time that I've, I've been doing this research. Um, but but I encounter friends and and people close to me who have experienced um, losses of a loved one and and you know I, I on one hand you don't want to be the researcher who when your friend has lost a close relative to say like you know I've done some research on this and here's what I found you know you don't you don't want to bring your professional life into those kind of personal interactions but on another hand I think that I can relate a lot better and and certainly um, counsel someone through these types of experiences having a foundation in the history of this literature and in the current state of the literature in a way that I certainly hadn't before so I think that it's it's profoundly impacted my my empathy for my my friends and loved ones who who experience these types of events what about the future for you and your relationship to this subject? What, what's the future hold in terms of further research on this issue? Um, so in this study, we weren't able to assess um, what's known as complicated grief or prolonged grief disorder um, or, you know, these kind of, this, this kind of broad syndrome that's still being characterized in the literature of, um, of, of grief and bereavement that is is very much prolonged and does not resolve. You know, certainly we think of grief and bereavement whenever you lose someone is natural to the human condition, um, and they are in these are intense and acute and very distressing periods in everyone's life. Um, but they resolve. For a subset of people, they don't, and um, they develop um, a set of symptoms that that tend to be prolonged and very distressing for a long period of time. Um, and they've been known by numerous names, and it's still kind of under under um, a debate over what to call this kind of constellation of symptoms. But complicated grief or prolonged grief disorder is is typically some of the names that that have been used. And so the epidemiology of those types of disorders, when you lose a loved one, whether unexpectedly or not, but especially unexpectedly, and you just can't get over it. You know, you just have these prolonged symptoms of yearning, of loss, um, of inability to move on, inability, you know, preoccupation with thoughts of the person for, you know, sometimes years and years. And so the epidemiology of those types of disorders has not been appropriately characterized in understanding the comorbidity with other disorders is certainly the next step in this research that we want to pursue.
And and how are you going to pursue that? And what what do you think you might find? Um, so we're we're attempting to conduct epidemiological studies. You know, get out in the community. What what is unknown is the burden of these types of disorders in the community. We see a lot of people clinically who have these type problems, but they're only the people who come to clinical attention. Um, there have been very few population-based epidemiological studies to understand what the prevalence is in the population, how disabling it is um, for people who co don't come to clinical attention, um, and, and what types of disorders are often comorbid with it, uh, what types of stressful events are often comorbid with it, and how it affects the course of people's lives. So it's really an open area of research that we don't really know that much about. Um, so that's what we're interested in pursuing next. And that, that kind of is the importance and the power of epidemiology because if you don't go out and do epidemiology, which is go out and look in the world and see what's really happening as opposed to assuming the world is, is represented by people who walk in through the clinic door, Correct. which was a, a fatal error that doctors made in the past. They right. assumed that, that what they saw in their clinic represented the world. And Correct. epidemiology reveals what right. the world is really like. And could you say something in conclusion then about that power of epidemiology, why it's so important? Um, you know, I, I think what we have found time and time again is that, you know, the clinic really is the classic, um, you know, what, what we call in epidemiology as the iceberg phenomenon. So that the people you see in the clinic are the tip of the iceberg. Um, and they're the most severe cases, and they're the, you know, they're the people who need the most care, and that's who should be coming into the clinic, absolutely, but they are the tip of the iceberg, and beneath those waters are a whole plethora of people who are suffering and who um, have symptoms, and it requires a concentrated effort to go into the community and develop measures and um, assess people for all a wide range of potential problems in order to fully understand the burden of psychiatric disorders um, in multiple populations and when we have, we have done that we have fully seen um, you know the the extent to which the individuals who come into contact with treatment are only a small subset of individuals in the community who might benefit from the effective treatments that are available so epidemiology is crucial to the planning of services because if you didn't go out and find that there's a large number of people who probably need help but for various reasons don't go and get help, it's it, you need to do that to find that out in order to try and set about trying to meet that need. Right. Certainly. Um, although the identification of people who need help is not necessarily does not necessarily translate to um, funding for those types of services depending on the community and the situation and um, you know the impetus for people who have these types of problems to seek treatment so that also remains an active area of research is um, not only promoting people who have disorders and are and, and feel stigma to seek treatment or are reluctant to seek treatment for other reasons to you know avail themselves of services but then to build capacity in order to accommodate you know, people who might need these services as well. So you could almost say, I appreciate that, that you may find this an unfair question, there's a kind of political dimension to epidemiology. Epidemiologists risk courting unpopularity because they often point out that governments aren't doing enough. They're often pointing out a gap between the need and what's provided. 
you know, I, I, I don't know that I can speak to that entirely. I don't, I don't know how much governments pay attention to, uh, to what we identify as the gap. Um, so, you know, as of yet, I, I think what epidemiologists do is document the, the burden of disorders in the community and what you've seen globally, uh, increasingly globally in terms of global mental health is that there's a huge chasm between the people who have not only, you know, psychiatric disorders, but very disabling psychiatric disorders and the unmet need for treatment. And so I think the structural calls in, in terms of what's needed not only fall on governments, but also fall on other types of, um, you know, community structures in order to build capacity um, to treat individuals. You know, I, I, I don't think it's, it's only a governmental issue at all. Um, but certainly, what epidemiologists do is go out in the community and document the problem. And beyond that, you know, there are all, I agree there are multiple kind of political and social forces that need to be melded to what we document in the community. So one really, really final question, which is psychiatric epidemiology has a special force because maybe with other things like heart attacks or or other disorders, it's more likely that people who have the condition are going to come forward. Maybe with psychiatric disorders, because that's maybe less likely for a variety of reasons, psychiatric epi epidemiology has a special force. Um, certainly what we've documented epidemiologically across a wide range of disorders that the, the stigma associated with having a psychiatric disorder is larger than the stigma associated with having a lot of different disorders. And this isn't always historically been true. Um, you know, the stigma associated with having something like cancer used to be much greater than it is now. Um, so, you know, this, this isn't a truism, but today, as we see it today, the stigma of having a psychiatric disorder, um, and it depends on the type of psychiatric disorder, is, is huge. And that is a huge barrier to people seeking treatment. Um, so, you know, I think psychiatric epidemiology has a particular call to um, go out in the community and document cases as they occur in the community in order to observe the extent of the burden of these disorders um, because such a low percentage of people with the disorders actually avail themselves of services. Catherine Keyes, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.